Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines Magazine podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. For three weeks now on this podcast, we've been talking about an imminent ground invasion of Gaza, but at the time of recording, it has not yet begun. Such a move would be a significant escalation in the ongoing war, and risks bringing Iran's network of proxies, including the powerful militant group Hezbollah, just across the border in Lebanon, into direct fighting with the Israeli army. Nor would victory be guaranteed in such an invasion. Hamas is well entrenched in Gaza, and combat in such a dense urban environment heavily favours the defender. But the October attacks have made it politically difficult for Israel's government not to act, and not to act severely and its embattled Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has sworn to eliminate Hamas entirely. Assuming such a goal is even achievable, the questions remain. What happens on the day after Hamas? I'm joined today by Gilbert Ashkar, Professor of Development Studies and International Relations at SOAS, the University of London. His many books include The People Want, A Radical Exploration of the Arab Uprising, The Arabs and the Holocaust, The Arab-Israeli War of Narratives, and most recently, The New Cold War, the United States, Russia, and China, from Kosovo to Ukraine. Earlier this week, New Lines magazine published his article, Two Gaza Scenarios, Greater Israel versus Oslo, in which he deconstructed two possible aftermaths of a successful Israeli campaign to oust Hamas from Gaza. Gilbert, welcome to the podcast. Faisal, thank you. In your essay, you say that the, the military aspects of the ground invasion uh, which are a serious challenge to Israel's military capacity themselves, are nevertheless going to be easier to navigate than the political challenges that could follow. Why is the military strategy more straightforward than the political one? Well, because the parameters of the military strategy are fixed. They know that the terrain, they know how dangerous it is for them to try to invade Gaza. Therefore, they are bombing Strip very intensively. Uh, I've read figures about 40% of, of, of dwellings already destroyed, and a large proportion of, of the urban concentrations has been destroyed. And this very intensive thing aims at, you know, flattening in some way the, 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 the areas that they will be invading in order to minimize the possibility for fighters to be hiding in buildings, as happens in uh, when you invade an urban setting, and also destroy the, the entrances to the tunnels that Hamas has built over the years. Uh, so all this is meant for them to really minimize the, the risks. So it will be an invasion, but uh, with a huge firepower uh, destroying uh, everything they, 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 that they are uh, progressing into. So that... this is something that they can master. It took them, of course, some time to, to design exactly where and from where to begin and how to do it. They, I don't think they had any plan, ready plan, you know, for the invasion of, of the whole strip. You know, that wasn't in the, among the scenarios, the military scenarios that existed. But now, mm -hmm. after October 7, that's the kind of uh, uh, goal. It sounds even like a minimal goal for them now, the eradication of, uh, of Hamas. And, and you can't think of any eradication of Hamas without an invasion of the, the whole Gaza Strip because Hamas is a movement that is very much rooted in the, in the population there, and the whole strip is, is, it has been governing 
this territory since uh, 2007. So, mm. so what does it mean to eradicate Hamas short of, of invading the whole strip? But this military strategy or military scenario, it's something that is within the ballpark of what is understood by Israeli military planners. It's the political dimension that I think is completely unknown territory. Because if you really do need to reoccupy Gaza in order to eradicate Hamas, then as you raise in your essay, there are lots of follow-up questions like, for how long? What are you replacing Hamas with? These kinds of questions. And these are the political questions where you don't feel that the, the Israelis and the wider world have fully thought it through yet. Yes, absolutely. The military plans can be drawn. Now, will they be able to implement them? That's a big question mark, you know. Mm. It will depend on the uh, uh, speed with which they can invade the strip, the difficulty, the the losses, the number of, of, of uh, soldiers that they be, will be losing in this operation, and the as a result of, of the huge number of, of civilians the, that will inevitably be killed, uh, and we have already several thousand, it's absolutely appalling already, uh, they may expect a lot of international pressure. And uh, the public opinions, even the Western public opinions, which have been very much uh, pro-Israel, the media in particular over the, the last couple of weeks, uh, you, you may see and you have a beginning also of a shift and more and more attention being pay, paid to the, 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 the Palestinian uh, casualties, the Palestinian victims of all that. So. So uh, the, the military plan itself is, is not to be taken as something uh, uh, easy to, to achieve. There is a big question mark about this. But yeah, yeah. if you have a plan to invade the whole strip in order to eradicate uh, Hamas, and indeed the next question is, what are you going to do with that? And what for? Huh? And yeah, that's where you have uh, those scenarios. The and these are the two scenarios, scenarios yeah. Exactly. Predicated on the possibility for the Israeli military to invade uh, the whole strip or most of it. Then, as I, I, I put it, you have two political views. Uh, if you take the polar opposites. Of, yeah, let's. Of the, yeah, before yes. we, I want to, because I want to go through each one. Sure. So the two yeah. scenarios that you talk about are one that you, you dub Greater Israel and the other one you dub Oslo. And I want to yes. start with the Oslo option. And this basically yes. entails restoring Gaza to the control of the Palestinian Authority. If Hamas is removed from Gaza, the idea is that the Palestinian Authority would somehow govern Gaza as it does govern the West Bank. Yes, the United States, uh, the Biden administration made it very clear that's what they want. They, they want the Israeli army to eradicate Hamas in Gaza and put the Palestinian Authority in control of, of the strip. Is that even something that is possible? Amor Abbas has already said to American officials, apparently, that he's not going to go back to Gaza, this is a quote, on top of an Israeli tank. So do you even think the Oslo option is going to be possible because the Palestinian Authority would need to cooperate for that to happen? Mahmoud Abbas is right, that's obvious, and that's why they would need uh, some sort of arrangements. And you have one which I quoted in the piece, yeah. Hud Barak, and the, the, the former prime minister and former head of the Israeli armed forces, explaining that uh, the scenario could be uh, Arab forces replacing the Israeli forces in Gaza 
once the operation is uh, is over, Israel would hand over to Arab uh, some Arab peacekeeping forces, which yeah. in their turn will hand over to uh, Mahmoud Abbas, so that Mahmoud Abbas is not directly put into position by the Israeli troops. Yes, this is all. This is fiction. All this is uh, political fiction, and uh, the, the the possibility for all that to work is uh, very limited, in my view. And uh, basically, again, we shouldn't forget that this is predicated on this idea that uh, the Israeli army will be able to eradicate Hamas, and uh, this is uh, anything but uh, but certain. Uh, you know. Uh, it's not uh, it's not at all certain that they would be able to do it the oslo option appears to be very difficult because it would seem in the barack version that you just outlined it would seem to require the cooperation of quite a few groups of people not merely the palestinian authority would have to accept to take it over you know on an israeli tank which mostly abbas is not going to be comfortable with and anyway, frankly, might lead to his toppling shortly thereafter. So it may not even be workable. But as you were explaining in your essay, it would also require certain Arab governments to put their troops on the ground and so on, which again is very politically complicated. It is it's complicated, but the United States may think of other scenarios too. Think of, uh, of uh, a deployment of UN troops and organization of elections. And, and the belief that uh, these elections would be won by the Palestinian Authority, because you have an aspiration. Of course, the majority of the Palestinians are uh, against this division between Gaza and the West Bank. And then, so that they aspire to a reunification of, of both territories. Now, uh, we can imagine a lot of things, but uh, the, the possibility of implementing any of that will depend very much on what will happen on the ground. And we haven't seen it yet. This yeah. ground invasion hasn't even started at the point, uh, at the time where we're, we're the, the, uh, speaking. So we'll come to that. But let's now talk then about the second option, which is the option you call the greater Israel scenario. And this involves Israel taking Gaza and then keeping it rather than handing it over to some other authority. So uh, talk to me about what that might look like. This is the, the polar opposite, if you want, of this uh, this Oslo scenario. Yeah. And uh, this is the view on the far right in Israel. The Israeli far right has always been a dreaming of, of the what they call the greater Israel. That would be the, the whole territory of, of British mandate Palestine from between the sea and the river. They were always very critical of the fact that the mainstream Zionism in 1948 stopped the war, accepted to end the war without conquering the whole of the Palestinian territory. That is, you, you, the West Bank and Gaza were left out. And then you, you had various scenarios like the, the Oslo uh, agreement where they have reduced ambitions, keeping control of only part of the West Bank. Now, the far right, was always in favor of control of all the land. And uh, the, the, the hard right is for what they call transfer. That is a, a new uh, forced displacement of the Palestinian population out of these territories so that Israel controls the whole of the land between the sea and the river. And, and that's what uh, the allies of Netanyahu certainly wish for. And October 7th, was for them, is for them this opportunity, you know. Is it possible 
even accepting that the Likudniks would like this to happen, is it possible for Netanyahu to do that? This was the analogy you drew in the piece. You said that just yeah. as 9-11 created the political conditions that allowed the Bush yes. administration to realize its pet project of invading Iraq, so the attacks of October 7th created the political conditions for Gaza's reconquest. But the public mood post 9-11 in the US was very different to the public mood in Israel today. Netanyahu would need some sort of backing from the public, not merely from his cabinet and his political allies, to have an extended occupation of Gaza. I would say that the public mood in Israel today is much worse than the public mood in the United States after 9-11. Because as Netanyahu himself in, in, in an exchange with Joe Biden, that October 7 was 20 times 9-11 in proportion to the population. And so the shock in Israel is tremendous, is very strong. And you may have, in the, if once the war go on, you may have a buildup of, of, of support for the view of taking, seizing uh, most of Gaza, uh, pushing whatever remain of the population in a corner, in some corner. They, they would have, of course, uh, uh, hoped for, for the Palestinians to flee into the Sinai, into ter Egyptian territory, but Egypt uh, uh, thwarted that by, by, by refusing and keeping uh, its gates closed. Now, how much this will be sustainable, how, what kind of pressure they will be exerting on the population to try to move to the other side and to cross the, the, this fence uh, at any cost, uh, this remains to be seen. But we are now dealing with political conditions that are completely different. And yes, 9-11 created a condition, uh, the possibility for the Bush administration to invade Iraq uh, later on, which would have been very difficult for them without 9-11, even impossible for them, given the mood of the public opinion in the United States before 9-11. And the same could be said, and at a higher level, as I said, when it comes to, to Israel. Mm -hmm. But, of course, you have also other factors. You have the international factor. You have the United States telling them, them it would be a major mistake for you if you uh, contemplated reoccupying Gaza. What Joe Biden meant by that is not entering Gaza to eradicate Hamas, which he supports, but staying there. Yeah. The United States does not want that to see. And, of course, that limits the possibility of that. But I'm, I'm speaking, That's as why. I said, of polar mm -hmm. opposite and fictional scenarios, which are what both sides, the two poles, would like. And what will happen eventually on the ground is what will deter determine the final outcome of this whole tragedy. It does make a big difference what the Americans say and the fact that Biden has come out against this long-standing occupation of Gaza. Um, means that it is unlikely that it can happen in the next year at least. Yes, but uh, don't forget what you have in the United States. You have today a huge far right in the United States. That's a new historical factor. Half, almost half uh, the voters. Uh, you have the, the prospect of Donald Trump being re-elected president. You have a Congress that is now where the Republicans now are in domination. They just elected the Trumpist as uh, House Speaker. So you have a number of conditions that may go, may help the Israeli far right, led by Netanyahu, into some kind of, of scenarios of this sort, if ever they manage 
to achieve the precondition for that, which is the invasion, the mm. ground invasion of the Strip. This was another question I wanted to ask you, which we mentioned briefly, which is the Sanai solution. Now, this would basically mean the transfer of this Palestinian population in Gaza, 2 million people across the border. But it seems to be something that some backers of Israel are trying to strong arm Egypt into. Why do you think the Israelis are so keen on this proposal? And why are the Egyptians so against it? Ideally, for the uh, Israeli side, if you... If they were able to get that, you know, and get the population and a filtered population and counting even on the Egyptians to filter it from Hamas uh, people and get them uh, to the other side on, on Egyptian territory, that will make it much easier for them to, to invade and uh, take hold of, of, of the strip. And secondly, much easier, not only militarily speaking, but uh, politically speaking, because then the number of civilian casualties would be much less than by destroying the, the, the strip as it is now with its population in. And therefore, of course, that would be ideal for the military, the Israeli military, and that would coincide, if you want, with the, uh, this uh, greater Israel uh, scenario. That would make it uh, possible, practically. Uh, but uh, that's what the Egyptian side understood very well. They, they, don't, they certainly don't want to get uh, 2 million Palestinian refugees on Egyptian uh, soil. They know all the complications that would create. They know that this would be a, political, a huge political problem for them. And, and that's why the Egyptian president came out very strongly explaining that uh, no way we, we could accept that. Don't even uh, think of, of, of asking us to do that. We won't do it. And if you are sincere about wanting just to give these people a temporary shelter, then why don't you open your own gates into your own territory into, towards the, the, the Negev desert and uh, put them there while you are doing your military job? That's how he very bluntly uh, put it as if he were, you know, giving them some tips on on how how to do it. Uh, what he what he meant was just to underline the fact that he fully understands that that's not at all a, an issue of of protecting or civilians or whatever. But the the issue is an issue of ethnic cleansing, basically, of forced displacement of a population that will never be allowed to 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 come back. That's what happened in 1948. You know, 80% of the Palestinians on the 78% of Palestine that the Israeli state uh, uh, ended up controlling, 80% had fled the war with their families. They took the, the, the whole families, you know, as in any war zone, civilians flee the war zone. That's very normal. They took their keys. They left their homes. They, they thought they would be coming back after a few days. And they were never allowed to return. That was the, the birth of the, as it's called, the birth of the Palestinian refugee uh, question. So that's what the Egyptians don't want to see, uh, especially okay. if that involves them. There is a fourth possible endgame. We had the British peace negotiator, Jonathan Powell, on the podcast a couple of years ago to discuss his book, Talking to Terrorists. And I'd actually like to play you a quick clip from that episode this is something that sort of comes across in your book, that governments talk to terrorists very late in the day. And there must be a political reason for that. I mean, it must be that having these conversations is so politically costly that people simply don't want to do it when they have the levers of power at their disposal. 
I think that's right. You know, it's um, it's basically political cowardice in the end to to actually be a leader and stand up when there's been a terrorist outrage and say, you know, we really need to talk to these people. I, I appreciate it. It's very, very difficult. But I was very struck um, talking to uh, the father of a, a small boy who was blown up by an IRA bomb in Warrington. And he said that if when his son was dying in his arms after that bomb, uh, he'd been told the British government was at that very moment negotiating the IRA, he'd have been horrified. Right. But if someone had told him six months later that the British government was negotiating the IRA, he'd have been delighted because then he'd have known his son had not died in vain. There was a process that was going to end the violence. Do you see any possibility at this point, maybe if Netanyahu is forced to resign or Hamas fights Israel to a standstill, that an Israeli leader would be willing to negotiate with Hamas in the foreseeable future? Uh, not at all. Before October 7, that that is something that uh, would have been imaginable. Uh, uh, but uh, after October 7, that's strictly impossible. Uh, just imagine the United States making a deal with bin Laden after 9-11. That, that uh, is not something that could have happened. It's, it's impossible, uh, I mean, politically. Like absolutely impossible. Mm. Now, the, if, if we want to try to find some ray of hope somewhere, you may think that at the end of the day, after uh, this tragedy ends up unfolding, and in, in the light of what you'll, you'll get, you may find a section at least of the Israeli public saying, okay, enough is enough. We've had too much violence and we must find a way to coexist with the Palestinians and the rest of the Arabs. Mm -hmm. And let's us do the necessary concessions for that, but not Hamas. Any prospect of a deal between the Israeli government and Hamas is absolutely out of the question. How do you then see the next days, weeks playing out in this conflict? That will essentially be the race against the clock of the Israelis, because the figures we, we get now are, are already over 6,000, close to 7,000 people killed. And, and this can only increase, especially when you have a ground invasion. So there are two things here. First, you have the, the fact that the public opinion, one can hope at the very least that the Western public opinion is not, you know, insensitive to what happens to, to, to the Palestinians, and especially when they see such figures. But secondly, Western governments can become very worried of the impact of this on the global situation, on the global south, on the Arab world, on the Muslim world, and they might fear that this will have huge repercussions, lead to a major destabilization, and a destabilization that would in return destabilize their own countries, because what happens in the Middle East spills over continuously into, the, into Western countries, into Europe, of course, but also in the United States. And, and that's also where you would have limits put on what Israel can can do with the consent of Western governments. Shulbashkar, thank you very much. Thank you, Kaisa. This has been The Lead from New Lines magazine. You can find Gilbert Ashkar on Twitter, at Gilbert Ashkar. His latest book, The New Cold War, The United States, Russia and China from Kosovo to Ukraine, is in all good bookshops. His essay, Two Gaza Scenarios, Greater Israel versus Oslo, is on our website. 
This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.